This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, welcome to the first ever episode of Graphic Novel TK. I am Allison Wilgus, and with me is Gina Gagliano. That is me. If you're listening to this podcast, you may be like, what will these women be speaking about? Why am I spending my hour on this instead of any number of other things? And the answer is because you, in theory, want to learn about the process of publishing a graphic novel, mostly through the process of traditional print publishing, although we are going to range from that from time to time. Publishing is this giant industry, and it's weird. It has all these crazy little bits, and it's really strange a lot of the times. A lot of the things that go on in publishing are not transparent to the people who are trying to work in publishing, either aspiring editors, designers, production people, or aspiring authors and illustrators. Many people that I talk to in publishing, either on the business end or on the creative end, get into publishing and then say a year later, I never knew this could be an actual job. Or I knew this could be a job, but I didn't realize that this was what was involved. Or I've been doing this for literally a decade, and I fundamentally misunderstood this very foundational thing because it just never came up. And all of a sudden, I, a professional of a decade, I'm like, oh, that's what a query letter is. Like, that is a conversation I've had recently. It's an enormous machine, and I think that often comes across as being very hostile, like a wall that people are trying to keep you out or keep things from secret, where I think most of the time it's just that it's complicated and it takes a long time to sort of sit down and explain everything and people don't necessarily even make time to do that or realize it's necessary. Yes, it's one of those industries where once you get into it, it starts making sense to you how everything works. And then oftentimes people who are just getting into it say, I didn't even realize it could work like that. Whereas the people who are spending 60 hours a day writing or editing or publishing or designing graphic novels are like, how could you not understand? Yeah, it's easy to forget how complicated and crazy it is. Because once you start doing it, you're just marinating in it basically all the time. You're just breathing it in. It's the water that you're swimming in. So over the course of this podcast, we're going to try to give you, the person listening to this, the tools to be able to uh, not only know more about the process, but also just when you see people in your life, maybe talking about it, maybe understand a little bit more, like maybe there's some words that people use that you don't 100% know what they mean, or maybe there's parts of the process that you can sort of sense exist, but people aren't talking about, or maybe it just is really overwhelming and you just want somebody to kind of walk you through it. And we're literally going to walk you through it. Uh, We're going to break the publishing process down into the smallest chunks that we possibly can and interview guests every episode to talk us through what all the parts of the publishing process are, starting with pitches and agents and going all the way through publishing a book and really getting into the technical minutiae of all the parts of the publishing process so that when you are inside the publishing process, you have the data to make the best decisions possible. And then also, you know, even if we don't cover something you have a question about, maybe we'll make it a little easier for you to know what you need to be Googling or what questions you need to be asking. Because I mean, I think that the huge thing is sometimes you don't even realize there is a question that you need to ask. And also, I mean, I'm personally looking forward to this. I've been doing this for over 10 years now, and I definitely am looking forward to publishing professionals telling me that I'm wrong about stuff. I cannot wait for somebody to be like, oh, no, Allison, you have completely misunderstood this. Like, no, yes, please, please tell me all about a thing that I don't understand. We're going to be talking to lots of people from lots of different parts of the industry that I don't work with on a daily basis, like distributors and printers and all of that sort of thing. So I am looking forward to learning a whole lot from them, too. We are going to start this week, uh, sort of give you a sense of one person's experience of getting into publishing and problems and complications and questions uh, that he has encountered over the course of his own career to kind of give you a sense of what sorts of things we're going to talk about and also what kinds of issues and questions people run into while they're doing this sort of a job. Yes. So we have a guest with us today, Ryan North, who is awesome, and he will be talking about his own comics origin story and and how he came to learn about the nuts and bolts of the publishing industry. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Gina. So tell us a little about who you are. If our podcast listeners are like, who is this Ryan North character? What would you tell them? Sure. Uh, I would say hello. 
And I would say uh, I am the author of a couple Choose Your Own Path uh, versions of Shakespeare, uh, To Be or Not To Be and Romeo and or Juliet. Where that's books where you decide what happens instead of having Shakespeare make all the fun choices for you. They might know me from uh, Squirrel Girl, which is a book I write for Marvel, but a, a woman who has all the powers of a squirrel and a girl. Or they would possibly know me from Dinosaur Comics, which is a webcomic I've been doing for the past 14 years, and that's where it's the same pictures and the words change every day. And hopefully they recognize one of those, but if not, they should definitely check them all out in order. Nice. You know, it's it's always really interesting when you ask people to introduce themselves, though, like which of their works, because I know you've done a lot of stuff, so I was actually really interested to see which things you picked in your intro. Yeah, I always forget stuff, too, and people are like, oh, this is my favorite thing, and I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote that, too, let's talk about that. <laughs> So, also, I feel like, you know, this is kind of an intro for the entire podcast, so very briefly, Gene and I, we should probably also be like, what we do. I'm a comics writer, and I'm also currently drawing a graphic novel, and Gina, what do you do? I work in graphic novel publishing at First Second Books. I do marketing and publicity for them, and I also volunteer with various conventions and festivals around the country doing programming. Um, so... Uh, lots of different experience. I Allison also has done license work. I've also worked at some comics museums. I've also written some comics news stories and stuff like that. So between the, the two of us, we have like 20 years of comics experience. Is it more than old. that? It's like 25 years <laughs> of comics experience. <laughs> uh, so Ryan, I really I actually do not know the answer to this. What was your first job in comics? Or, also, what, would, what do you consider a job is like a different question. So what would you describe as your first job in comics? How did you get into comics? Right, right. Um, I mean, my very first job was, I think, Dinosaur Comics. If, if you count that, because that was creating a comic. Definitely. And uh, I did that basically um, for 10 years before I did anything else. What um, year did you start doing that? Do you remember? 2003. Yeah, I remember. It was a good year. <laughs> I started doing comics in 2003. And uh, I, spent, I spent 10 years just doing dinosaur comics before I did anything else in comics. Which Oh my gosh. It was great. It still is great. Like, it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's nice to have your own thing. And... It's a surprisingly flexible template. I thought after a month I'd run out of things to do with those pictures, but at, you know, 14 years in, there's still new stories you can tell with them. Comics is crazy flexible. Can you walk us through kind of like, I mean, I you know we could probably sit here for three hours talking about this in depth, but like, can you kind of walk us through sort of the sort of path that you've taken from when you were doing dinosaur comics to kind of the stuff that you're doing right now? Yeah, for sure. And this is, you know, a path that no one else should take because it's a crazy one. What I did was I did dinosaur comics for a decade, and then I got an email out of the blue uh, from well, shoot, woman who would be my editor on Adventure Time, and she, what happened was she had read Dinosaur Comics when she was in school, and now had graduated and was working at Boom Studios and needed a writer for their Adventure Time book, and thought, hey, I'll ask the Dinosaur Comics guy if he's available, and so I started doing the Adventure Time, that was a licensed book, and uh, from that... I started doing Squirrel Girl afterwards. And so it's this weird process where I thought I was writing, you know, my, my talking dinosaur webcomic. And what actually happened was I was writing this, you know, really long form 10 year visual resume that showed, oh, here's Ryan. Here's the kinds of jokes he likes. Here's him meeting a deadline, even a self-imposed deadline, which are the hardest types of deadlines to meet. Here's, mm -hmm. here's him like knowing his way around characters and a joke and stuff. And so it really taught me, in retrospect, the value of uh, putting your own stuff online because, you know, yes, you can gather an audience and yes, you can get better at the work and the craft, but you're also showing people what you can do. And if I hadn't been doing Dinosaur Comics, there was no way that my editor, or Shannon Waters, would have emailed me and said, hey, do you want to write Adventure Time? Because they'd be like, who is this guy? And why are we going to trust this, this licensed property with him? He's just a random guy. And can you kind of go through a bulleted list of the kinds of work that you've done since you started doing comics outside of dinosaur comics? Or just not even just comics, other kinds of books? Ali and I were just talking about um, your whole family is made out of meat this morning. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm going to forget some because I've done a lot. But there's web comics, which is dinosaur comics. Then you've got Squirrel Girl, which is superhero. You've got uh, Venture Time, which is licensed. You've got The Midas Flesh, which is a... Uh, independent comic I wrote. You've got uh, To Be or Not To Be and Romeo and Juliet, which are kickstarted uh, multi-collaborator because every editing is illustrated by different artist projects. Um, 
there is a unannounced picture book coming up, a secret project coming up. Gasp. Gasp, yes. Uh, the only thing I think I haven't written that I that seems significant is a straight prose novel. I haven't done that yet. You'll get around to it. They're scary, <laughs> you know? Nah. <laughs> Just going to get the momentum and then it's fine. Yeah, sure. I guess. Yeah, how hard could it be, right? Yeah, it's fine. Just, just get up on a Tuesday and do it. It'll be fine. Um, what good advice we have on the show. <laughs> I don't actually know the answer to this question. Have you had any jobs in comics outside of uh, writing and making comics? No. Uh, because you also founded Project Wonderful. Oh, yes, I have. Sorry, I absolutely have. My mistake. <laughs> Uh, so Project Wonderful is an advertising company I started for webcomics because a lot of the existing options were not that great. And uh, that is over 10 years old, too, now at this point, which is crazy. Um, but I, I always think of that separate from the writing because that's software developing. That's you know what I actually trained in school for. And it feels like a very different hat, even though they're intimately related. They're part of the same industry. But yes, there is also software development I've done. <laughs> Yes. And so what's involved with Project Wonderful? How does it work? So the idea is you have a webcomic and you like to make some money from it. So you put a little bit of code in your site and our advertisers can then put their ads up on your site. And the difference is, unlike most companies where you're paying for a click or for display, with Project Wonderful you pay for time. So you say, I want my ad up on Gina's Amazing Comic for one day and I'll pay this much. And then your ad's there. And so it's very geared towards smaller people. Like Coca-Cola doesn't care Sorry, Gina, about Gina's awesome webcomic in this scenario Gas. that we just invented. But uh, the fans of it do, and the readers of it do, and other web cartoonists and people do. And so they can get their ad up in a way that sort of sidesteps the major corporate channels for advertising. So it's very much like a peer-to-peer advertising system that's meant for little people instead of the Cokes of the world. So I keep bragging on Coca-Cola here. I, I do sometimes enjoy their products. They're a tasty beverage once in a while. Very high in sugar. So, okay, the reason we were kind of asking about whether or not you've had other jobs is because, like, how do I put this? Publishing is this enormous industry that you sort of, as, as you were saying, kind of got into a little yes. bit sideways. How would you describe your process of learning what publishing was and how it works? Sure, and to answer that, I should mention something I did forget, which are the Machine of Death anthologies, which we did oh, yeah. publish. <laughs> we acted as publishers there. That was a collection of uh, short stories based on the same theme of a machine that can tell you how you're going to die, not when, but how. And it has this uh, old world sense of irony to it. So if you get old age, you think, phew, I'm fine. And then like an 80-year-old man runs you over with his car and you go, oh, of course, I get it. Old age. And so uh-huh. for that, we uh, put together the stories. And this, was, this is the origin of publishing story for us because we put together these, these collection of stories. And we thought, oh, great, great, we made a book. Now the next step, as we understand it, is to get it published. So let's send it out to publishers. And publishers were like, what is this? This is a novel we want. And we were like, explain, please tell us why this is bad, because we think it's great. And they said, well, there's three strikes. You're an anthology, which is a hard sell. You've got no big names, which is strike two. And it's science fiction. It's genre. So these are three things people don't want, we don't want. And we kept saying, like, well, it's a good book. <laughs> we had people tell us, this is great. We can't publish this. And there was a disconnect there we didn't understand. So one of the publishers said, you know what? If these pictures were illustrated, if these stories were illustrated, rather, Maybe we could publish it. So we commissioned illustrations for every picture. And they said, you know what? We still don't want it. <laughs> so where was this in the timeline of, of your other stuff that you were doing? Uh, gosh, this is around early 2010s. Okay. So this is about so seven, still... eight years in. Still just Dinosaur Comics. Okay. So this was your first encounter with publishing? Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's the hell of an introduction. <laughs> so we, had, we, were, we were young and foolish. So we had solicited these stories publicly. And then when we got them, we said, all right, guys, you know, this is coming soon because clearly we've done all we need to do. So all we need to do is find a publisher and we're, we're good to go. So years were going by, people saying, where's the book? Where's the book? And every time a publisher would be like, we're interested, we're interested, we're not interested. And that process would take a couple months. So several years had gone by at this point. We were in like 2013, I think. And we finally said, you know what? Let's just self-publish it. How hard could it be? We'll self-publish it. <laughs> and we got really lucky because uh, we were doing this on through Amazon's Create Space, which is just what we thought publishing kind of was. You upload a book and then it's published, ta-da. But because we had spent five years saying this book is coming soon, we had accidentally built up this demand for the book. And so when we said, the book's out, let's all buy it on this one day. I think it was a Tuesday. Let's buy this book. Uh, we The book became 
Amazon.com's number one best-selling book for that day. Gosh, I remember this now. Yeah, and that was amazing because suddenly these publishers were emailing us saying, hey, who are you? What is this book? We want to publish it. And we were like, actually, we spoke four years ago. <laughs> you said it was garbage. <laughs> uh, but the fun part with that is that we didn't realize uh, that was the day that books normally drop. And so there were other people who... Because we didn't know publishing. There were other people who were very upset. They, Glenn Beck had become accustomed to his books becoming number one. And uh, he was that uh, sort of right-wing radio host at the time. And uh, that night, he called us out on his show as being part of a liberal culture of death, <laughs> which was amazing. Because he hadn't read the book. He just saw Machine of Death. and like, I, oh I, can, I can run I, with this. Now I'm, you're saying this, and now I'm remembering all of this. Yeah, so we had like, a celebrity I hadn't beef. thought about this in years. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. And so uh, we actually sent him a copy of the book, his show. With a little slip and pa- a paper inside that said paper cut, with the idea that he would read the book, get a paper cut, and that would be his cause of death. But for, we never heard back from him. But uh, that, was, that was our first experience with publishing. And then that segued into the sequel, which we put out through an actual publisher, Grand Central. And then we had, you know, how publishing actually works, where you have a lead-up to books. You don't just drop them and say, please buy it. You have expectations and, and, and media reach out, and you have it professionally edited and like the the joy of publishing through an actual company is that there's every step of the way there's someone whose only job is that thing and you know a good editor is worth their weight in in gold because you sit they make you sound better than you are and all these a good publicist makes your book sound better hopefully better than hopefully just as good as it actually is but like they can do their job so well and it's it's hard when you're wearing every hat like we were doing to uh you know be be the best you can be. We got lucky because we'd accidentally built up five years of demand for this book by thinking publishing <laughs> was easy. But it's, it's, it's certainly a process. So, uh, okay, I have a couple of inside baseball questions for you here because this is an extremely inside baseball <laughs> podcast. So first of all, like when you started, you were saying the nice thing about like kind of the publishing machinery is like the specialization of different people's jobs. Yep. Like, do you remember having any moments of being like, this is a job that I literally didn't know that existed. And now suddenly it's extremely important. Were there things you were encountering that you just hadn't really been thinking about before? Yeah, like there's there's a, a layout artist who makes the book look pretty. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. Because we just, you know, threw together the book and it looked good, but it didn't look great. And people who know like, oh, if you're doing this, this printing, you know, you have these illustrations with a lot of blacks that might bleed through. Let's go for a higher paperweight on this to make that feel better. The idea of having, there's a term for it where the outer edge of the book is ragged. It's mm. called a deckled edge. Oh, I love that. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> it makes every book look classy. Like it's this ancient tome. I love it. But there's, there's, there's all these things where you don't think of it because when you're doing it yourself, you either have to learn it and you probably learn by doing it. And it's probably your first time doing it. And there are a lot of first time mistakes you'll make when putting together a book that you can avoid by having someone who's not their first time, who's their, actually their entire job to do it right. So my other uh, question here is like, so uh, kind of backing up a little bit, before you ended up kickstarting it, when you were initially sort of trying to talk to publishers, how were you doing that? Were you like asking friends of yours to email people? Were you talking to people you already knew? Were you just cold emailing people? Like literally <laughs> like, because I mean, it's a lot of people are in the situation that you guys were in where you're like, how, literally, how do I even start this? Yeah, um... I think... And it was a while ago, but... Yeah, well, there was also... I was the only editor. It was me and my friends, uh, David Melky and Matt Bernardo, and we did it together. So we didn't all do the same thing. David was the main guy on this, but uh, we tried doing the does anyone know anyone at a publisher <laughs> approach, which didn't work. <laughs> and then I believe David got an agent, and that's that's tricky, right? Because an agent is a very uh, intimate position to have, and I feel like the best way to get an agent is when you don't have something to sell, <laughs> like you already like the person, you know they're good, and then you say, hey, I've got a book to sell, can you sell it? Versus, hey, we got this book to sell right away. And of course, anyone say, yeah, I can sell that for you, give it to me, I'll definitely sell it. Um, so we got an agent, and I think the process was, publishers would express some interest, can you make these changes? We'd make the changes, and they'd say, we weren't actually that interested. Or the editor would leave, or like something would change over that time period, and what we thought was a deal would fall apart. That's what ate up several years. And the problem is, like, you send, we'd send it into the agent, and he'd say, great, give me three or four months, and then, you know, nothing would happen. And we'd say, why is this so hard? <laughs> Can we not just upload a book on Amazon and sell it that way? And then eventually that technology existed, and we did. <laughs> 
like the process took long enough that the nature of the landscape literally changed while you were waiting for the yeah absolutely and it was great because <laughs> Technology caught up with our laziest dreams. And the, the thing that made CreateSpace work very well in that instance is that we upload the book to CreateSpace and they say, here's the minimum price we're going to sell it for and add some more on top and you'll make some profit. But as the book became more and more best-selling, Amazon's all-seeing computer eye realized that the more they print, the cheaper their cost is. And so the cost of the book kept going down. And so but by the time we were number one, it was, I think it was a sub $10 book at that point. <laughs> so it just increased... People who would buy it be like, yeah, I'll, I'll take a chance on this best-selling book I've never heard of for seven bucks. Why not? So it became this positive feedback loop, which uh, I'd, that'd be very hard to duplicate, but it worked out well in that instance. So um, again, we've kind of touched on this a few times now that you've worked in a lot of different kinds of books and a lot of different parts of publishing mm-hmm. for a while now. So when you're sort of starting a new project, like what's your thought process at this point about how you're going to do it. What's your relationship with publishing as like a decision-making process? Because this is a podcast primarily about traditional print publishing. Yeah. Like how do you decide that a, that a project that you're working on is well-suited for traditional pu- print publishing? I came up through webcomics, and in the early days of webcomics, the idea was, you know, we are the future. We don't need anyone. Why would we deal with dinosaur publishing, right? And this is a very narrow point of view because there's two completely different beasts. And you might have you know, a hundred thousand or a million followers online, but they don't walk into bookstores. <laughs> it doesn't equate to, to real life stuff a lot of the time. So for me, what I, what I love about actual publishing, like real publishing, is that you get in venues where you can reach the majority of people, right? Like it's, I feel like I always think of my parents where I would say, hey, I've self-published this book on Amazon. And they'd be like, what? versus, hey, there's a book out, you can buy it at a bookstore. They'd be like, oh, great, I'll tell my friends to go get your book. <laughs> like it, it exists in a real way. So the advantage for me of publishing is, besides the professionality of everyone having a job and doing it well, you reach an audience you wouldn't otherwise reach. And you have a team behind you who's all working out towards this one thing. I, I like the idea of, I'm just a guy, I'm going to do it all by myself, I don't need anyone. But I also, having experienced it, you know, there's a real appeal to the idea of there is a team behind me who are great at their jobs, and they're all going to try this, make this book the greatest success it can be. And like, editors are a great example because a good editor is worth their weight in gold. And you will think you've written a good thing, and then you'll send it to a good editor, and you'll get back notes. And there's a tiny part of you that's disappointed because your book was not perfect and amazing. And there's a huge part of you that's relieved because now the book can be perfect and amazing. Like it's, I love editing with a good editor because it always makes me feel like I'm smarter than I am. And you get that through publishing. Yeah, I feel like a good editor is all about kind of energizing you. Like a good editor is a positive feedback loop of getting you more excited about how cool this book is and not a discouragement thing where you're like, oh, I guess this is garbage. Yeah, I mean, for me, I always think the books I write are great. <laughs> this is amazing. So that hasn't been a problem. Um, but the problem is the flip side of that where you think it's great, you don't see the flaws. And the editor says, well, wait a minute, like, this doesn't make sense. This section is redundant. This is, this is ridiculous. And I say, oh, right. Yeah, no. Okay. I was overconfident <laughs> as I always am. Cause I need to be in order to write. Like I, I need to feel like I'm in a space where I'm great. And I'm like, yeah, a great person should write a book versus if I'm insecure, I'm not going to write anything because I'll feel like, why would anyone want to listen to my stupid stuff. So it's a lot of building yourself up to be able to put something out there. So Ryan, you're talking a lot about how the institution of publishing is is pretty awesome, which we agree with, but you're <laughs> saying this and you're also still making dinosaur comics. Yes. Absolutely. So there has to be there has to be some awesome stuff about that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I love about dinosaur comics as compared to what I'm doing now with other things with larger companies. Like I'm doing a comic for Marvel that's owned by Disney. You're literally working for a multinational corporation, which is the exact opposite of indie publishing <laughs> as far as you can go. But what I love about Dinosaur Comics is that it is immediate. It's something I put out and it is out there right away. It's intimate. It's just me. There's no editors there, which I'm saying how great editors are, but for a daily comic where it's, it's just you, it's, 
it's unfiltered, it's legit, it's immediate. And that's what I love about it. It's still this direct connection that I have. And you, what you lose through any sort of publishing, whether professional or self-publishing, is that delay in time, right? Like you write something and then whether it's a year or weeks, but it's still a time delay where then it finally comes out. And just doing it online just by myself, it's so immediate, it's so responsive, and I, I don't want to lose that. Yeah, and there's a community you've created for yourself that started with dinosaur comics too yeah yeah I, I, very early on i was really confused because i'd i'd read comics online comics i'd love them and then i'd contact the creators or meet them at a show or something and i would really like them too and we become friends and i'd be like what is going on how is there a one-to-one correspondence between comics i like and people i like <laughs> shouldn't there be a comic i love by a creator i hate and then i realized like that is that can happen but it's very rare because you Writing is a very, uh, in a sense, a very intimate thing. You're, you're sharing yourself. And if you like what's being shared, you'll probably like the person sharing it. Not all the time, but most of the time. So nice to meet your people. This is the kind of thing I spend a lot of time talking with friends about, about conventions and whatnot, mm-hmm. and people who are like, you can't be somebody's friend just because you like their comic, and et cetera, et cetera, and they're a person. But then, like, you know, you're talking to people privately. It's like, yeah, but oh, cool comics are made by cool people. I like, do <laughs> kind of want to be friends with them. <laughs> you don't want to be that jerk who's hassling people people at a convention but you're like i do super like your comic and you do seem really cool yeah and it's so hard to be like i think we should be friends but you don't know me but i really feel like we could because i like your work like i've been on both sides of that and it's hard a stand-up comedian i love and i feel like i sincerely feel like we could be friends but i can't make it happen because i'm too i'm too into it now like i'm too needy You'd have to be at the same birthday party, coincidentally. Yeah, I'm waiting for that to happen. Then be like, hey, I love your work. Let's talk. That's it. But I can't sort of go up after, to him after a show and be like, I love your work. I do comics. Here's my comics. Um, what, what are you doing after this? You, you want to <laughs> get a drink, see what happens? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not hitting on you. I just want to hang out. Yeah, it's just friendship hit. I got a friendship crush on you. I'm sorry if I'm making this sound weird. <laughs> I just want to hang out with you, the two of us alone. Why are you going? Why are you running away? I'm a normal person. I'm chasing after you shouting, I'm a normal person. Like, it's hard. One really reassuring thing about literally every time I talk to anybody anywhere in the chain of the comics, beginner webcomic people all the way up from, like, editors, it's like this universal of it basically being a never-ending whirlpool of friend crushes on each other. (laughs) People who just think that everybody else is really cool and they secretly just want to have a nice conversation. Yeah quietly in the corner at a party where you don't know anybody else and like that's a universal process that never goes away that makes me feel better i I like that a lot and if you do have a person like that i recommend uh asking them for a blurb for your book or asking (laughs) oh no no or asking your publisher or a convention you're going to to arrange an in-conversation event with them a what with event an in-conversation event Oh, yeah, that thing where, like, you go up on stage and it's, like, a conversation between Ryan North and that stand-up comedian that he likes. Oh, right. And so then you'll just interview him on stage. I love it. And then you'll become friends. So I, I just meet them in the most public way possible. <laughs> it yeah, it'll be fun. You can talk for 30 seconds beforehand. It'll be great. That's amazing. But, you know, one thing you mentioned there is a thing I hate about publishing is that form you get when you write a book and they're like, great, we're going to start the publicity for this. Here, author, give us a bio, give us a list of every every magazine that's ever said something nice about you. Who are the famous people you know? Who can we ask? Who can you ask for a blurb? Because you should be doing it personally. I hate asking for blurbs. It feels like you're the saddest trick-or-treater that nobody likes in the world. I'm folding in on myself just thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Or like, who are the famous people you know? I feel like, I don't know. Like, even thinking of them as famous people makes me feel horrible because they're just pals. They're just folks. I just asked a friend of mine that I've literally known since I was in college and I am 36 for a blurb on my book a few weeks ago. And I still felt kind of nervous about it. Yeah, yeah. Like, we've known each other for 20 years. Do you want to blurb my... I mean, only if you don't mind. Like, I don't want to bother you or anything. No, it's it's what I hate about it because it feels like there's this tiny, tiny, minuscule, but still there idea that what if it's possible the only reason we're friends is for this payoff I've been planning for 36 years. You know it's not true. They know it's not true, but it's... If someone acting in that way is indistinguishable from what you're doing right now. And that's what I hate about it. The idea that all of our relationships could be commercialized and we wouldn't know. Which is why it's nice that publishers will sometimes take care of all this stuff, like arranging the conversation events or um, getting blurbs for your books or anything like that. So they can handle the transactional part of things and you can just be friends with people. See, I'm still still learning about publishing because I've been doing that 
myself. <laughs> and I would love to never have to do that again. It's like if you know people, it's always better to be personal. But when I was, just, I mean, I just had the blurb email with my editor a few weeks ago. And I basically was like, I'm going to email these two people I actually know. Please, 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 please email everybody else. I'll die. <laughs> They'll answer your email. I'm some rando, please. This is the pitch for for publishing, as you say. (laughs) We will do the stuff that makes you want to crawl into your skin and die. And I'd be like, oh my God, you don't even have to pay me any money. Just do this for me. (laughs) And in fact, in publishing, we will pay you money for us to do all of the things that make you want to crawl into your bed. So so that's another thing we were going to ask you. I don't actually know. Do you have an agent that you work with at this point? I do. Um, I had a vague feeling for basically a decade before I, I met my agent that I probably should have an agent. <laughs> it seems like the kind of thing you should do. And uh, I'd avoided it by just, you know, not having any deals that required one, except for one that kind of didn't, I didn't have an agent and should have. But uh, the thing with an agent is that it's, it's kind of like blind dating, right? Where you're meeting someone and you both have expectations of where this will go, but you don't know them yet. It's such an intimate thing. Like they're going to be representing you and you want someone who represents you well. And so I got lucky in that I waited long enough that some of my friends got agents and I could talk to them and be like, what do you like? What do you dislike? And ended up just going with my friend Kate, her agent, now my agent too, is great. Uh, Seth Fishman, he's amazing. And that was just meeting someone that I liked and trusted. Because it's a huge amount of trust, like, right? Like you're, you're trusting someone to represent you in your work. And that's, that's hard, right? That's giving up a baby. Do you feel like uh, working with Seth has sort of changed your relationship with the machine of publishing at all? Like either kind of helped you understand things that were confusing before or sort of taken things off your plate that were taking up a lot of your time? Both of those. And also he's a guy I can call and be like, Seth, what is happening? I don't understand what 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 this is. The, I mean, the main thing is the huge value of an agent is that you can talk to your agent and say, "Is this normal?" And it's like your your sex ed teacher. <laughs> You're like, "This is happening. I don't know if it's supposed to. I feel kind of weird about it, but kind of excited. What's going on?" And it's like, "Yeah, you know, this is normal." Or, "No, that is not normal, and you should have that checked by someone." Like, this metaphor is falling apart at this point, but the idea is like, there's a lot of companies. And people that prey on inexperience and will tell you this is normal and it's not normal. And your agent will absolutely recognize right away, this is not normal and we can push back on this. The bad actors are operating from a position of like this this mercantile capitalism where they think I can ask for it. And if they don't say no, then that means it was okay. And that's how people end up signing contracts where they give away their rights or they, they mess up and it plagues them for the next 10 years. But an agent will catch that and say no. And they'll say, oh, haha, we didn't really want that. You got us. Like, just don't hate the player, hate the game. And you're like, no, I'm going to hate the player if the player's acting shitty like that. I'm really glad that you put it that way because that's literally, you know, when G and I were talking about doing this podcast, that's a huge amount of what we, why we wanted to do it is kind of to give people who maybe aren't at the point in their career where they, for instance, have an agent representing them, like, or maybe they don't know a lot of more experienced people in their day-to-day life. What is normal? Yeah. Like, something to gauge against. Like, this is how things are supposed to work. And if something isn't working basically like this, it might be fine, but maybe you should ask somebody. Yeah, I had one place. It was for a smaller project, but um, they were like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll publish it. And then uh, when it's no longer in print, the rights are right back to you. I'm like, that's normal, which it, it's pretty normal, right? It, that's, that's not unnormal. Yes, but what does that mean exactly? But what does that mean exactly? <laughs> and they had to find publishing to include ebooks, And so oh, all they had to do was you know, keep a file on a server somewhere, <laughs> it would be there indefinitely. So uh, that was something that was caught and changed because I was like, this will never revert. Like you've defined reversion clause that outlasts the heat death of the universe. And they're like, oh yeah, haha, uh, whatever. It's always sort of a sheepish like, oh yeah, no big deal. Don't know how that clause got in there versus like we put that in and yeah, we're happy to remove it. It's just, it feels like there's a culture of negotiating in bad faith, at least at the start. Like you start with the world's crappiest contract and then it's very easy to make that into a decent contract, but they're always trying to push it to see what they can get. It's frustrating because I think even even the best publishers that I've ever worked with have weird stuff in their boilerplate. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They'll say it's boilerplate and you'll be like, well, who's boilerplate? Is that, that doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> The saying it's boilerplate is just them telling you it's normal and you don't know what's normal. Yeah, and, and for people listening to this, boilerplate is just like the standard, unaltered in-house contract that you begin with before yeah, you change anything. The copy-paste thing you start with. Yeah, and the boilerplate can also be somewhat of a problem for people who are working with a publishing house that primarily does prose. 
And they're giving this to you as a comics person, maybe the terms for the art, maybe the idea of selling at conventions is not clearly outlined in the the contract. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that you kind of want to look at there. Yeah, and there's there's a huge cultural difference I find in prose publishers and comics world because I had an experience where I was tabling at a show and I wanted to get some books sent to me. And the publisher's like, well, we have a table. What what do you need a table for? <laughs> like, well, this in the comics world, you have a table because the, com- the fans come looking for you and they, you need to be in a place where they can find you. And it was like pulling teeth to get them to send books to me because they wanted me to send people to their table so the idea was they would come to my table and I'd say, thanks for visiting me. Let me shake your hand. Now walk across the convention floor, buy the book from them, and then walk back to me and I'll sign it for you. And that, like, that's madness. But the prose world saw it as, why are you taking sales away from our booth? <laughs> we'll just sit them through our booth. It'll count for you better that way. Well, I was like, this, the experience for the fans, the experience for the reader has to be ideal. And this is suboptimal. Like, this is not what you want the experience to be. But it's just, it's different different worlds between comics and prose. And I also find the prose world, there's a more of a culture of giving away the book as a lost leader. Like, come to our show and you'll, we'll give away some books. And I'm sitting there at a table trying to sell the books. And in, in the comics world, you normally sell the book. Like, that is the product. Well, I feel like in the prose world, it's always seen as you can give this away and you'll buy the next one in the series kind of thing, which works. I've done it. I've bought whole books because I got the first one for free to show. And I was like, oh, this is great. I want more. But it's kind of hard to be sitting there trying to sell the book when there's an expectation that they should be getting it for free. Well, especially because the numbers in prose publishing tend to be so much larger. Like yes. how many copies of that book got printed total that you're giving away? Like what percentage of the print run are you giving away at this? Because like <laughs> at a big, at San Diego, if you were giving away a graphic novel, that could be a significant percentage of the total number of books that you printed. Exactly. Like you've just given away to your entire audience just about. <laughs> yeah, this just, it's a very small pond. Because I mean, the whole point of this podcast, again, is like we're trying to be specific to not just print publishing, but comics print publishing mm-hmm. in general, like, are there any other big difference, you know, moving back and forth between prose and print publishers, are there any other kind of differences that have really surprised you or been uh, unexpected in some kind of way? Or uh, The giving away books surprised me a lot, because the first time it happened, I was, I was at uh, the publisher booth signing, and the person said, is this for free? And it was this really awkward moment where she had thought she'd asked a very reasonable question. And I was trying to think of a way to respond that didn't sound like that was the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Clearly, it's not free. I'm in a booth selling books. Um, and then it's so hard when someone expects something is free to say no because they've already got it in their hand. And then they're going to feel rude putting it down again because it's saying, I would read this for free, but not for any price. Like It's, it's a very fraught relationship where everyone is trying to be polite. That was the first um, and the biggest, I think. The other thing, I guess, was the lead-up time, like going in from webcomics, where I would write a comic that morning, publish it before noon, and it would be done. I'd be getting feedback immediately. The world of publishing where, you know, you write a book, and it could still be a year before the book comes out or more. I'm not even sure what happens. There's there's stuff in trades. Is that a thing? Well, a lot of times they're printed overseas, too. Printed overseas and getting publicity lined up. And I was the baby in arms who thought, you know, a book came out. And then someone at a magazine would buy the book and like it and review it. I didn't realize that there was advanced reader copies that they would send out to people ahead of time and that reviews would be scheduled for launch so that people who read reviews can go out and buy the book right away and you get a a big hit when everything's landing at the same time. Didn't even know what the word hit was in that context. I didn't even know books went out of print. I remember it was 2005. I wanted to buy a book that I'd wanted to buy since 2000 and it was no longer in print. And I was like, I don't understand. Do we not live in the modern age in which everything exists forever? I didn't realize that books would eventually stop being printed and you would have to buy them at a used bookstore or not read them. I was very naive and I've I've learned a lot in my journey. So at this point in, I mean, I'm sure this has changed an enormous amount over time, but like right now, kind of where you are in 2017, like how does your time break down in like an average week? Like... Right. What percentage of your time, what are you doing right now for your work when you're not, you know, playing Breath of the Wild, whatever it is that you're doing in your free time? Um, 
How did you know? <laughs> how, do, how does your week break down right now? Like kind of how, what are you doing and how much time is it taking up? Yeah. And we, we've been spending some time talking about things like conventions and blurbs and all that, that sort of thing. So it seems like an author's life is not just kind of like getting up at eight in the morning, sitting down with a pen and writing until six in the evening every day. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. And it was such, I, when uh, Romeo and or Juliet came out, which is the two zero in Shakespeare, uh, that's who we were heading. They're great. And they had organized a day of publicity where I would stay on the phone and talk to different people. And I was like, okay, that's fun. Um, I was planning to write that day, but all right, I guess I can do one day <laughs> doing this publicity. And then, you know, it, it keeps happening. There's, there's always new interviews, new podcasts, whatever. I remember I was doing an interview with Lev Grossman writing for Time. And we talked about the book and it was great. And at the end, I'm like, Lev, can I, can I ask you a question? And he was like, sure. I'm like, what is this? Like, how do you write when there's so much stuff that's not writing once you have a book out? And he was like, yeah, you know, it's hard. It's, uh, you got to find the time. <laughs> I was like, all right, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I meant to sound professional, but I had to ask. There are days where I go up to write and I get no writing done. I do work. I answer emails. I plan for conventions. I order stock. There's all this stuff that is not writing, but is required to be a writer. Yeah, so like walk us through it a little bit. Sure. So I'll get up. There's maybe an, an email inviting me to a show, which is great. And I'm always flattered, but then I have to check the schedule, uh, see where it is, figure out if I can get stock there, which is shipping books to that location, which is tricky because if you don't live there, you'll need a hotel. Does a hotel accept uh, boxes from people? How long will they hold them for? How much will they charge for keeping the box? Usually it's by the box. The show might have it, but they usually charge by weight. So if your books are heavy... How much does each book weigh? See if it's cheaper to do it at the show or at the hotel. How far is the hotel from the show to bring them over? Like, it's just logistics. And that's just from one email saying, would you like to come to our show? We'd love to have you. And you're like, oh, no, that just added two hours of work to see if I can say yes. Then there's, um, you know, answering interviews or publicity or people. Some people treat Twitter as a work where they like, this is social media or this is social. You should be publicizing your work. I treat places like Twitter as relaxation. So the idea is this is a fun place to hang out and crack jokes and basically goof off between work. And so when I do have a new book out, the plus side is hopefully there's an audience there that I can say, hey, I've got a new book, check it out. And they'll say, oh, this guy can make a joke in 140 characters. Let's see what he's like at 50,000 characters. Maybe <laughs> it's better. <laughs> but yeah, I treat Twitter as fun and not work. But some people do treat Twitter at work where they sit down and they say, all right, now I've got to make three good tweets that talk about my book. And that's that's always tricky. And then there must also be some correspondence with your publishers and collaborators and all of those people. Yeah, well, this, this is assuming I'm not even writing a book. If I'm doing a book, like uh, right now I'm working on a little mini book, a choose your own path called Shakespeare Punches, A Shark and Other Stories. And so I've got a spreadsheet of artists who are illustrating each ending and give the artist a deadline. And then it's following up and saying, hey, this is this is happening. Just a reminder, this deadline is real. <laughs> you need to hit it. Uh, contacts that. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of logistics. And usually on a good day, I can get that out of the way by 10, starting at 7. On a bad day, it might take me past noon. And then you've got a couple hours of good time to write. And then there's life stuff, walking the dog, making dinner, that sort of thing. I would love to say it is 100% writing and 0% everything else. Most days, on a good day, it's 90-10. Most days it's probably 70, 30, 60, 40. That level of productive stuff versus productive stuff being like actually writing versus stuff that's around writing. And I hate to be like this, but 70, 30 sounds really good, actually. Like, yeah, I was saying that. And you're then doing like, good if you're hitting that. I said 70, 30, then I'm like, ah, I should also say 60, 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it, I say it's hard. It's, it's, most of it is fun. Most of it is satisfying stuff. But, the idea of Gina's fantasy, which is my fantasy too, of sitting down with a pen at seven in the morning and then looking up at 7 p.m. and saying, yes, another good day writing. I can't believe what a good writer I am. Now to bed <laughs> is, is not real. So, I mean, kind of building on that, you know, like that, I, this sort of disconnect between what you might think this job is like and what it's actually like. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice that you'd want to give to a younger creator who's listening to this? Maybe they've been doing a webcomic for a little bit, or maybe they've done some zines, but they're trying to get a little bit more serious about it. What kind of advice would you give them? I would say get, find out what's normal. 
And I was going to say get an agent. You don't necessarily need an agent to find out what's normal, but find out what's normal. Talk to people in your community. And for that, like the main piece of advice I got when I was younger, and I'm like, this is actually good advice, is let's say you're doing a webcomic and you want to meet other web cartoonists. You should be reaching out and forming a community with people who are doing the same stuff you are at the same stage. Like if I'm a new actor, I'm not going to... Who's a famous actor? Tom Cruise. Why won't Tom Cruise answer my emails? (laughs) Because he doesn't know who you are, but he's going to be done acting in 10 years and there's going to be a new crop of actors coming up and you're going to be part of them. And the the advantage of befriending and making a community with your peers is that you're all coming up together and you're going to know each other. And then in, in 10 years, you'll be the Tom Cruises who, you know, have these friendships and relationships and the new generation will be like, oh, look at these cliques. I can't get in because it's very hard to form any sort of relationship with someone when you want something from them because it's going to seem transactional and they're going to be able to detect that. And you can't walk up to Tom Cruise and say, hi, Tom Cruise, we should be friends because I think you'd be good for my career. <laughs> so the the advice I have in that regard is, you know, make friends with your peers. You'll help each other. You'll do great. And you'll be the, the next generation doing this amazing stuff. Uh, find out what's normal and put your work online. Because I was talking earlier, you know, about having dinosaur comics. I thought it was goofy talking dinosaurs. It ended up being this this resume that basically got me my print career in comics was through dinosaur comics and that was just putting stuff online where people can see it because yeah it it might get you an audience and yeah it might get you this group but it's also it's teaching you to meet a deadline publicly and when you're writing comics like when you're writing but especially when you're writing comics you are the one who can't screw up because if you mess up everyone else stops if they don't have a script the artist can't draw the letterer can't letter the inker can't ink the editor can't edit everything stops if you don't hit your deadline so you are the most horrible single point of failure so you a good writer in comics hits their deadlines and a writer that hits their deadlines is better than one that doesn't objectively so so putting your work online shows you can hit a deadline shows you can do all this stuff and also it gets you practice like you are walking this tightrope publicly and I look at my earliest dinosaur comics. I thought they were great when I put them out. I don't think they're that great now. I think they have significant flaws that I can now see. But I work through that by continuing to write. And I'm so glad that when, you know, when I did my first Adventure Time comic, this is my first time working for an editor at a, at a company, they got the Ryan who had been writing for 10 years and not the Ryan who was like, yeah, how hard could it be? <laughs> Here you go. I wrote a script. And that that's a huge advantage, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't really believe the idea of you've got... What's the Gladwell? Is it a thousand hours? Ten thousand hours? Ten thousand hours. Ten thousand. That seems like an awful lot. <laughs> I don't believe that you have to get the bad stuff out before you get the good. You can. Some people can't be good right away, but it it doesn't hurt to get the practice out, especially getting the practice out in a way where someone is not paying you to do it right away. They're there because you're getting them on your own merits. Well, I think that is an excellent note for us to wrap up on. Um, Thank you so much, Ryan. Can you tell us uh, what's next for you? What should people be checking out right now? Uh, If they are like this Ryan North character, I wish to buy some things by him. I wish to consume his goods. Has he any content I can purchase? There's a squirrel girl from Marvel every month, and it's great. And this month, she is still in the Savage Land fighting robot dinosaurs. It's amazing. Or right now you can get uh, Romeo and or Juliet and To Be or Not To Be, which are the Shakespeare books you should read that are True to and Path. They're great. They're fun. They're exciting. And uh, coming up next year, I've got Yet Unannounced Secret Project and Picture Book, also secret. So keep your eye out, I guess, for cool stuff, hopefully with my name attached to it, <laughs> and then read them. Yeah, so where can people, if they want to to watch you make jokes when you're supposed to be working on the internet, where can they do that? Uh, you can follow, it's at Ryan Q North. Q is in Quants or Quentin. Um, it's it's fun. I like Twitter, I guess it's an aside, but Twitter's the one that got me, I was the guy who got stuck in a hole two years ago, and Twitter got me out. I remember that time, Ryan. It was a good time. I'm glad that you're not in the hole anymore. <laughs> me too. I'm, I'm enjoying life outside the hole. But uh, Twitter got me out of that hole. So if you follow me on Twitter, maybe I'll get stuck in another hole. Although I won't because I feel like you can get stuck in a hole once and people are like, all right, that could happen to anyone. If you get stuck in a hole twice, people are going to be like, come on, Ryan. Like, this is not a hole. This is you. You're the one. <laughs> You're I'm the trying to remember if this is a literal or figurative hole. Yeah, it's a literal hole. Oh, literal hole. Yeah. Yeah. It was a uh, it was a skate bowl. So like a drained swimming pool. And it was raining. Oh, yeah. And so it was so slick. I couldn't get out with my dog. 
You'll have to elevate your adventures. Like maybe next time it will be you and the robot dinosaurs in the savage land. And you'll be like, Twitter, I never thought this would happen. But yeah, Yeah, here I am stuck on the moon. I've prepared for this day and yet feel unprepared. Yes, for some reason I have service here. The day after that, like I got out of the hole, thanks to Twitter. I walk home and the friggin' Guardian had a front page story about it. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I'm Canada's idiot who got stuck in a hole, but it was fun. The day after, I get this call from this L.A. producer who's like, listen, kid, I love what you did with the hole. Love it. (laughs) Got this idea. Uh, We'll do a show where you get stuck in different areas and people have to get you out. And I said, no. (laughs) It only worked because it was sincere. I was sincerely trapped in a hole and we used what I had in my inventory, which was completely random, to get out of there. If it was fake you'd know there'd be a solution. And I'd be like trading on the kindness of strangers to be like, here I am again, stuck in a tar pit. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, what are we going to do? Like, it just, it doesn't work. So I wished him well, and maybe he'll find someone else to get stuck in holes and get out of things. Well, the power of the internet is revealed to all of us. And thank you, Ryan, for coming on to uh, help us prevent young cartoonists from getting stuck in the hole of bad decision-making. (laughs) <laughs> Either literal holes or the holes of bad decisions. Yeah, I'm just kind of bring it all back around here. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, whatever the reverse of a segue is. A concluding a seg- rap. Rap, rap so. way? I'm sorry. You can read Dinosaur Comics and find out more about Ryan's other projects at dinosaurcomics.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Q North. Thank you so much for listening to Graphic Novel TK this week. We hope that you've enjoyed our first episode and that you stick around for the rest of the podcast. And next time, we're going to be diving into the enormous swimming pool of publishing terminology and what I think is going to end up being a two-part episode where we talk to our dear friend George Rohack and walk through the glossary of publishing in a shocking amount of depth to kind of give you the tools to understand all the ridiculous nerd conversations we're going to have moving forward. For instance, you might have noticed that the title of this podcast, Graphic Novel TK, has a mysterious acronym in it. Gina, do you want to give people a preview of next week's episode by explaining what the title of our podcast means? I think we'll have to wait for next week, Allison. Oh my god! So, suspense, cliffhanger, please join us next week so that we can explain the title of our podcast and a whole bunch of other stuff also. So, again, I'm Allison Wilgus. And I'm Gina Gagliano. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to you next week. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at Graphic Novel TK or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com.